Amen. Church, just remain standing as we read our passage of study for today. If you want to find it in the Pew Bibles in the back of your pews, you can find it on page 519. We're going to be reading from John chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 27 through 42 together. Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking to her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. And in the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat, eat something. But she, he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him some food, and to, some food to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say that there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sow and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you did not labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Now many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you have said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Again, you may find, if you don't, you can find your pew bubbles there in front of you if you want to follow along. We are people who stick close to the text here at Grace, so we invite you to open your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you are welcome to take that paper back there, take it home with you, use it, study it, question, ask questions from it, whatever the Lord leads you to do. Now, we're going back to our study in the Gospel of John this morning. We took a little brief excursus, of course, for last week for Easter. And uh, before Easter, we were kind of taking an in-depth look at Jesus's conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And in this particular portion we've been studying, leading up to Easter that is, um, we've been devoting our attention specifically to trying to figure out and understand this call or practice of evangelism that we're called to. What, is it, what does it mean to be evangelistic? What does it mean for us to be a people on mission, we say? Or what does it mean for us to be good witnesses? However you want to frame that question. And we covered two large pieces of information in those first couple of weeks, again, prior to Easter. And that first week we talked about what is, it, what is the ground of good evangelism? We looked at those first few verses, his first engagement with the woman at the well. And we kind of used that as a way to kind of think about how we might have engaged in a meaningful way with unbelievers as we meet them in the marketplace in our lives, wherever the Lord leads us. Um, particularly as we're helping people come face to face with their sin and, and people to recognize the impotence of misplaced worship, which again is the real issue, is it not? Like that's what the garden's all about, is that we have diverted our worship away from the one true God who deserves all worship. And then we said ultimately to show them 
um, that, 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 that there is a need of a Messiah. Actually, I jumped ahead of myself there. The second week we talked about what does it look like for us, to, what's the substance of good evangelism? So we're looking, and, and, and so as we're engaging spiritually dark places and people, we want to understand what, what does it look like for us to really share the gospel? What is the content of the gospel? What is, what is the content of conversion? What does it look like for people to convert? Again, what I just mentioned in terms of coming face-to-face with your sin and misplaced worship and our need of a Savior. And so today we kind of, take a, kind of bring a, an end to this kind of mini-series within John, and we'll move on starting next week in the rest of our study. Um, and we want to look at the third section, the end section here. And we want to explore the, the good fruit, as it were, that comes from faithful evangelism, faithful witness. Um, I think we're going to see lots of wonderful things here in this text. And so if I, as I typically do, if I could put the sermon in a sentence, here's what I would say. The fruit of our witness is knowing the satisfaction found in doing the will of God and the simplicity of inviting others into the story of redemption. Say it one more time, just to make sure it sinks in, because this is, this is where we're heading this morning. The fruit of our witness is knowing the satisfaction found in doing the will of God, like there's satisfaction there, and the simplicity of just inviting people into the story of redemption. Amen. So there are going to be three observations we're going to have from the text this morning. I'll give them to you now if you want to follow along and catch up with us as we're walking through the text, or if you're a note taker or whatever. We're going to look at three things. One, the defeaters of effective evangelism like there are those things in our lives that kind of hinder us from good fruitful evangelism and we see i think two here in this text we're going to look at the satisfaction of urgent obedience that that actually following jesus is satisfying i think sometimes we think it's we've been told well it's a drudgery it's not it's actually satisfying to follow jesus and then we'll see at the very end the simplicity of this woman's shared story and the fruit of that to her community so let's look at the first point there, the defeaters of effective witness or effective evangelism. Look at, pick up again there in verse 27 and then look at verse 31 as well. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? So that's defeater number one. Number two, defeater number two we'll see is in the meantime, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat, eat something. We see the defeaters are a reality that happen in all of our lives, and, and we're going to look at two of them this morning, but just understand there's, there's tons of defeaters that hinder us from being effective witnesses to the world that we live in. And I think two of them we see here is, is one, a cultural and social convention can be a defeater, and two, just that need for personal things, right? Like that personal, i gotta, I got to take care of myself kind of thing, right? And we see this here in these in disciples' lives as they come back to Jesus because one of the wonderful things about whether or not you want to test the authority of Scripture is if the disciples were making this all up, they certainly did so by making a lot of fun of themselves, right? Like we don't see a positive view of the disciples a lot of times in the Gospels. They tend to kind of be like clueless, right? And this is kind of what's happening here. They're like coming back in. They don't really know what's happening. And they come in, and this first defeater is cultural and social convention. The disciples have come back from their grocery run, right? How do you have a snack run? Got to make sure Jesus is fed, because we know that Jesus was wiped out from the journey. He was by the well, and yet we all know that there was something else in that engagement that he was hoping for. But as he's sitting there, they leave Jesus out by the well. They run into sidecar. They hit the local Publix, and they, hey, man, load up the, load up the truck and bring it back, right? And uh, they come back on the scene, 
And they find Jesus, for them at least, a very peculiar situation. Something about this scene seems odd to them, seems unusual, even seems um, not to sit well with them. And it's because he's speaking with a woman, and particularly a woman of Samaria. Now, of course, we've already dealt with the Samaritan side of this a couple weeks ago, so I'll divert your attention to that in the, in, uh, back in early March, if you want to go back and listen to that. But the fact that he's just, here just notes that he's speaking to a woman, and so this catches them off guard, right? But they're too afraid to actually kind of put their thoughts out there, because Jesus has rebuffed them on numerous, time, numerous occasions, has he not? And so he comes to this scene, and they're just really baffled by this. And the reason why is simply this, right? Like the culture back then was, it was quite scandalous for a man to be uh, engaging a woman in, in public, much less in private, right? And this is always a, a challenge, right? It's always a challenge to know how to navigate these kinds of things. And so when I say this disclaimer, I want to put a disclaimer here before we move on. When we're talking about culture and social convention, we're not meaning to establish that that's a negative thing. Like culture can be a very good thing. In fact, it's something that God himself creates, and it's something that he creates us to do. We go and we cultivate, if you want to say. So we're not trying to put a, like a divide between the church and culture, because that's really a false divide. It's all God's. God made everything good. But, it's, but sometimes culture, as it comes out of sinful human beings, becomes a bad thing. And that's what we're talking about here, is this culture and social convention that has wired them as such as to see that Jesus' evangelistic engagement seems odd, seems out of place to them. Well, that's because ultimately, back in their day, there was this rabbinic teaching, right? The rabbis, they would take the law and they would train and disciple all these followers. And, and their job was to exegete the law, essentially, which is a good thing. But oftentimes what would happen, and we see this in our own day as well, is they would take the implications of the law and they would make them the law itself. Does that make sense? So it's almost like you're taking the law and you're adding to it. And so whatever your implications of the law are means that must be the law. So therefore, if people are not acting and living within the, that kind of implications as you see it or I see it, we're kind of making that a law unto itself. So they're stretching the law. And so when they come on the scene, this is the way people would see women and perceived back in their day. Here's a couple of, let me give you a couple of examples of this rabbinic teaching. A couple of quotes. One is, a man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even his sister or his daughter, on account of what men may think. That should tell you everything you need to know, right? Because it's really not about the glory of God, it's about what men may think, right? A man shall not talk with a woman on the street, not even his own wife. That's, guys, I'm not making this stuff up. And especially not with a woman on, um, not, with, not with another woman, on account of what men may say. Another uh, uh, example he that talks much with womankind, this is good, guys, this is good, brings evil upon himself. This is real teaching back in Jesus' day. And we, we kind of gaff at it, but this is the way they would take the law and exegete it, and they take those implications and make them the law itself. And Jesus rebuffed the Pharisees numerous times for these kinds of things, and we got to make sure that we are aware of what's even in our own culture. So maybe, maybe finish up that quote. He that talks much with a woman brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit Gehenna, death. Wow. So all of that is infused in this whole thing that John wants us to see here and these, these disciples come back um, to see Jesus from their, their grocery run. Now, hopefully, your antenna went up, right? 
There's something about this that doesn't sit well with us. Because we know that there's, there's something off about the way this is understood and the way that maybe the law is being treated and the God's word is being treated. And it's true. It, 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 it's teaching is out of step with revealed teaching of Scripture. And we did a study on this last year, about this time, actually back in February of last year, before everything shut down. And we talked about the relationship between men and women and how important it is for us to think about these things. But, and because of this, the Bible never treats women as lesser than men. Never. And that's the way we got to make sure we understand that. God makes both men and women in the image of God equally and of the same dignity. Now, to give these guys their best reading, because I think we all try to do this, we all know that there are dangers, right? We all know that there are things we need to be careful with. We all know that there's dangers between the sexes and what that can happen between men and women. And, and sadly, even between men and men and women and women these days, we have to be aware of these things. We have to be careful with these things. And so I want to give them the, a generous reading, right? We want to make sure that we're not like just throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? Because there are, of course, effort, good efforts to pursue purity, of, you know, right? And that, the, that these are good and right, that we need to be diligent for good. But to treat interactions between men and women as deserving death is out of step with Scripture. It just is. Yes, God has established, and we at Grace hold to this very dearly, God has established an order to the home. He's established an order to the church. So men should, if, you are, if, you, if you're in a household where you do have a married couple, a husband and wife, the husband should be the spiritual leader of his home. He should sacrificially give his life and lead his home, particularly in spiritual affairs. And we do believe that in the church, that qualified men should be leading and shepherding the church and preaching and handling the word before the congregation so that the church may be grown and edified. So we, we hold to these things without any reservation. And of grace. But nevertheless, that never displaces the, the, the way in which you and I, as brothers and sisters, should engage one another. Do you understand? Like, the Bible by nature says about our relationships between brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters and brothers and sisters is that we are brothers and sisters. That's what we're designed to be. And so, yes, put on all of the things that God commands his church to be, but let's also not create all of these extra things. So, you know, the Billy Graham rule, for instance. Y'all have heard the Billy Graham rule. There's some wisdom in the Billy Graham rule, but the Billy Graham rule is whose rule? Billy Graham. And so is there wisdom in that? Sure, there's wisdom in that. But there's also, but I doubt Billy Graham would have went so far as to say, I can't talk to a woman in public or sit down on the bench outside the church and talk with her or, and, and engage his brother and sister. Christ. Of course not. That's just not what the Bible says. The way we fight for holiness, though, is not through social convention, but it's through repentance. Believing in the power of Christ. Trusting in the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit to protect us and drive us to holiness. Not social convention, not social stigma. And it's very, very important that we don't rewrite Scripture just because we're scared. Right? So that's what we have going on in this situation. This is a, this social convention. That's the big point here. And we can take that a whole lot more, a lot further. But just understand, you can load in a whole lot of other social convention to this, right? And, and so I'm using this example because that's right out of the text. But the, the point we need to be aware of is how our culture, cultural makeup, can also inform how we understand our gospel mission. 
Because that's what the disciples were doing. They were loading all this into, oh, wait a minute, this is not right. So uh, something doesn't appear to be kosher here, Jesus. And we got to be careful that we're not being students of our culture rather than students of the scriptures. It's very important. that At least that's a, that's a big one for me. Because um, we all sometimes fall in the same trap today, right? And we use similar means to hinder the gospel witness. And just to continue on this track about men and women, I met Amanda at Southern Seminary in class. So believe it or not, guys, men and women studied in the same classes together. But men at seminary are weird. And I'll tell you how. I got some folks in here from Southern Seminary. They know what I'm talking about. If a woman comes and talks to a man at Southern Seminary, they're like, like this kind of thing. And my wife will tell you, she's got some of the funniest things about just having interactions with men in class about theological issues and the way the men would be like, am I allowed to talk to you? Kind of thing. Again, be careful, but don't stretch the scriptures beyond what it's supposed to be because it can hinder evangelistic witness. Because if that had been what loaded into Jesus' situation, he would have never, ever sat by that well and that woman never would have been born again. Does that make sense? It's important that we recognize that. But there's the other distraction of personal need. And this is probably hits us more in face-to-face, does it not? This personal need. We all have needs. Like, I have, we need food, we need shelter, we need jobs, and those kinds of things. And, and the Bible nowhere says that we're called to a ministry of poverty. I think sometimes we think, well, if, you, if you're a Christian, you should just automatically want to live in a poverty mindset. That's just not true. We should live detached from those things, but there's no such thing as a poverty gospel. No more than there is a prosperity gospel. Right? But... There are many examples in the Gospels where the disciples are so preoccupied with their personal needs and Jesus' personal needs that they lose sight of what is ultimate. They have a preoccupation that was blinding them from seeing what truly brought satisfaction. Right? And what's really interesting is you kind of watch what's unfolding here. You see these disciples coming back in. They're a little bit dense. Not sure what's happening. And then you have this woman who has come out there for her sustenance of that day. And she's leaving, and she's leaving her pot behind. Why? Because she's found something so much more satisfying. And she's running into town going, you have no idea what I've just experienced. And here these guys are going, what's happening here? Sometimes we can be a bit clueless as to what God is doing. She thought her greatest need when she came out to that well was for her to provide herself that water and that sustenance and frankly to have a little bit of free time away from the the gossipy ladies who would always talk behind her back and when she gets out there she realizes that's not her greatest need her greatest need is to feed on christ and it's our greatest need right it's 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 a need to know that we ourselves can can, if we're not careful of our own need to feed on Christ, it will affect our ability to be effective witnesses because we'll allow a whole lot of defeaters to get in the way. Those are just a couple. I bet you can think of a lot more. The second thing that I want us to notice in this passage, though, is the satisfaction of urgent obedience. And we find this in verses 32 through 38. Um, Jesus has come on the scene and they, I mean, they come back on the scene with Jesus and they're imploring Jesus, Jesus, eat. And Jesus says, nope, I, I'm not hungry anymore. 
I've got better food. What? Better food? Um, so what was our whole trip to Sychar about? Well, that was your deal. I got better food. And what he's saying in this whole exchange is that there's a better feast to be found in doing the will of God. I said it a minute ago, I'll say it again. There really is satisfaction in following the will of God. It's not just a, tr- a drudgery. There really is satisfaction in doing the will of God. Jesus, was his, he had transcending priorities, right? Of serving God and doing his work that, that were superior than, to his earthly reality and his earthly needs. You remember that just earlier in this chapter from a couple weeks ago, Jesus is tired. This trip has worn him out and he needs water and he even asks this woman for water. So he's tired. And, and, and listen, we're going to face needs too. But even as we face needs, we need to make sure that we're, those needs don't distract us from what really satisfies, which is doing the will of God. And, and, and that's what he says here in this passage, is that you need to embrace this too. That's what he says pretty much right there. Don't you say that there is still four months and there can, then comes a, the, a harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. I sent you to reap. Verse 38. The point he's trying to say is that that it's not just for me. It's not just satisfying for me to do the will of the Father. Friend, it's satisfying for you too. It's really satisfying for you to do the will of God. There are lots of things that will satisfy you in this life, or at least we look to for, for, for satisfaction, for enjoyment. And they're, and they're not bad things. Like We can think of hobbies, we can think of recreations, we can think of goals, we can think of all kinds of things that are satisfying, things that are helpful, things that we enjoy. But the service unto God should be the food that gives us preeminent energy, preeminent nourishment over our to our soul. Now, listen, I can imagine right now that there's like this tired old trope that's running through your head because it ran through my head as I was studying. Well, I'm not Jesus. Admit it, you were, you were saying that in your head. Well, I'm not Jesus, so don't like lay this burden on my shoulders. And I just want to say lovingly, Christ's commands are not heavy burdens. And Christ's commands are not legalism. So when Jesus gives us this, he's not just coming to us as an example. He's coming to them as second Adam. Right? And we know this because, yes, we are all dead with Adam. Like we were, this is where we began, this is where we start. And until Christ saves us, we are dead in our sins. And that has impacted my desire, your desire to do the will of God because we can find much other much, much more fulfilling things, at least in our mind, that will fill up our day. But again, Jesus is not seeking, he's not saying this to be our example. He's saying this because he is the second Adam. And, and as a second Adam, we're no longer dead in Adam. We're dead in Christ. We're raised with Christ. We are filled with his spirit upon conversion. And the spirit actively sanctifies us and turns our hearts of stone into tarts of flesh And with it comes new affections and longings to do what is right and what is good. And so we should fight back that tendency to be weary 
um, and, uh, of being called to do things for God. We should want to push back on that notion and find that it is satisfying to worship and follow Christ. Other food may be good, and it too can be of use for the glory of God. Um, but at the end of the day, if it's not leveraged for the glory of God, or if it's pressed above the glory of God in our lives, it is distracting us from obedience to Christ. So go and enjoy your life. Do it well, but do it for the glory of God. If you have a hobby or an interest that will allow you to bring Christ into that, please do it. Now, why is this important? Because, if you haven't figured this out yet, disciples, followers of Jesus who feed on and are nourished on the things of God, they just grow. If you don't know this, then you're probably not growing. Those who feed on Christ, just, they just grow. Spurgeon pointed to this as he was preaching on this passage, obviously 150 or so years ago. Let me just give you the quote. Some of you good people, and this, and this is a point of thought, some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings and the Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dissipation would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find yourself spiritual, you'd find your spiritual health mildly restored for very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding... And no working makes men spiritual dyspeptics. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of, of a Savior, no gray-haired man, gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for, and who wonders if you begin to groan or to murmur or to look within until you are ready to die of despair. In other words, it just simply put it this way, the best ailments to a dry soul sometimes is getting to work for Christ. Amen. To make his commands the goal of our lives. Again, to make it plain, obedience is not legalism. Legalism is depending on something for justification and salvation. Obedience is the fruit of justification. Does that make sense? And so when we get to that, that this, this is why Jesus is putting this point out here for us, because he wants us to understand the urgency of our eye, to open our eyes to the harvest. I fear much of American evangelicalism, evangelicalism has been reduced to a kind of Christian faith that pursues the happy, the healthy, the fulfilled life. Again, not bad things. Good things, but not ultimate things. The church, though, as much as those things may be good and necessary pursuits, the church has a greater pursuit, which is to be trained for battle, according to Jesus in this text. Amen. Battle to go and share the gospel for, and, and to contend for mankind's souls. Amen. So then a soft evangelicalism will lead to a soft urgency that has been darkened, 
that has darkened our ability to see what God is doing. And so perhaps many of us avoid this because we understand that um, we've misunderstood the call. Maybe we don't engage because we don't understand exactly what it means for us to be this way. And so Jesus says, I've sent you to reap. Verse 38. Now, why is that important for us to take notice of? Because he hasn't called us to plow. Now, why is that important? Well, if, you've, if you've ever had a garden, my mom here, we had a garden. I hated, hated working in that garden when I was a kid. But every year you had to take the garden all the way down to the stool, right? You had to turn, till that thing up, get all that seed out, and then you put new fresh seed down and you water it and so to grow a new harvest, right? Some of us think that our mission is to go plow. And that's what Jesus has said here. Jesus says, no, 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 I've been plowing since the beginning. The Spirit's been seeding since the beginning. The, Spirit, see, the Spirit's been watering since the beginning. And all you have to do, verse 38, is reap. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored, and I think he's talking about the prophets and the, the you know, other folks, and you have benefited from their labor. In other words, Jesus says, look, that the Spirit is already planting and watering. That's what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians, I think. That is the gospel. That God has planted his seed of redemption and has been watering it since the beginning, ever since the fall. All through all the covenants, he's been unfolding this idea of redemption and watering it and seeding it. And now that Christ has come, our job is simply to reap. And what does it mean to reap? To announce. Just announce the gospel. And when we announce the gospel to dying men, some will be saved. Some will be saved. And we need to be faithful to invite them to hear the words hear the teaching, hear the life change that's found in Christ. And that's exactly what's happened to this woman. We've forgotten about her, haven't we? She's moseyed on back in the town to tell everyone, hey, you, I need to introduce you to somebody. And that leads to that third point that I want to talk about just for a moment, and then we'll close. There's a simplicity in a shared story. And if you just look at what happens in her life, you just realize it's, it's really quite simple. There's a simple confession, and there's a simple invitation that unfolds here. Look at verse 39 through 42. Now many of the Samaritans from the that town believed in him, and they give you an example why, because of what, was, what the woman said when she testified, how he told me everything I did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them there two days. And many believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you have said, but since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. It's a simple confession here. Like, like she's, been, she's been saved, born again for like, what, 20 minutes? And... Uh, She's running on back in the town, and the gospel and all the training and all the discipleship that goes into us growing in Christ and all the doctrine that we should be growing in as God's people, we need to memorize that we don't start there. It's not all fully orbed in her life, but here's what she can do. She can, experience, she can share what she experiences. It's what you can do. It's what I can do. And what did she experience? He knows me. 
Now, isn't that really one of the great pursuits of our lives is to be known? And that, isn't that really just kind of touch on the real heart of the gospel? We just want to be known deep down inside. And, and frankly, if we look at the world in which we live in right now, isn't that what they're trying to do too as well? Even if it's being fulfilled with sinful aims, I just want to be known. He knows me right down to the core of my being. He knows my hurt. He knows my pain. He knows my struggle. He knows the rejection that I've lived with all my, most of my life. He knows me better than I know myself. He knows me. He knew what I needed better than what I thought I needed. And friends, the same is true for you and I. Let's keep it simple. Christ knows you, and you need to share that. That there's nothing hidden from him. Oh, I know there was a chill that just went down your spine when you, when you heard that. <laughs> there's nothing hidden from him. Oh, we, put on, we try to put on a good show, don't we not? Do we not? Like, we try to do what our grand, great-grandparents did, right? Uh, Adam and Eve, staple leaves to cover our shame. And, and, and what is the very first thing that Jesus does? When he, when he sends them out, into the, into the, out of the garden, what does he do? He sacrifices animals to put a better covering over them. Your covering won't do. Only I can cover you, Jesus. He knows me. And all of your pursuits, all of my pursuits outside of Christ are to be known and for you to see the best me that I can give you. And Jesus says, uh-uh, I really know you. That's evangelism. And, and here's my question to you. Let me just turn it to you. Do you know this Christ? Do you know this Christ? I mean, do you know him and are satisfied in him? This woman was minutes old in her spiritual life, as I said earlier. And her only goal was drop everything, literally, and go tell anyone she could about Christ. Which leads us to the other simplicity of the story, right? Simplicity of invitation. And what does she say? Um, Just come and see. Come and see. That's it. And they did. And they sat under his word for two days. And Jesus nourished them and cared for them. And they believed, at least many of them did. Not all of them. You're going to share your story. You're going to share your redemption, this redemption you've seen in Christ. And there are going to be a lot of people who walk away from that unchanged. But some will. Some will. Do you think we tend to overcomplicate the task? think so i think we do go announce the good news go tell them that about the christ who knows you invite them to church hear the word of christ explained week after week Uh, a big shout out here for a second don't want to embarrass them Um, but ivan man just really led us well in sunday morning bible study this morning we got gifted men in this church who, who teach well and we just, we just want to be the word. Stay close to the text. Invite them into this. You don't have to have all the answers for them, but you can invite them into it, and they can be progressively changed through it, can they not? Just so thankful for that. Let them see you partake in the body of Christ and the, the mystery of it all. Let them 
Let them see you take the Lord's table here in a few minutes. When, when we clearly say that if you're not a believer, you, you shouldn't come because, because this is for those, this is only offers hope to those who've been, who've been redeemed. And they wonder what that's all about. Like, friends, do you understand? We don't have to do bells and whistles, smoke and laser beams to get people into the building. We just got to do what Christ commands us to do. That's as evangelistic as you get. Friends, worshiping Jesus, being obedient to Jesus is is, is just about as evangelistic as you're ever going to come. Friends, this morning, speaking of the table, let us come with an expectation, shall we? Expectation that this is not just rote things that we do each week, but with an expectation that, that this table reminds us that I've been included in something that I could not earn on my own. And there's something powerful about what happens here in the body of Christ. And again, that's why we take it together, not in, in as individuals. We take it together. We, we serve, and then we wait, and we contemplate, and then we come together. Why? Because we're a family of Christ, and there's just something. Like, look, what did Jesus tell his disciples? They will know your mind by what? How you love one another. Man, I can't imagine something more loving than participating in the table as the body of Christ week in and week out. Because you're saying, these are my people. Oh, we have our messes in here. Oh, I'm sure there are people in here that annoy you. I'm sure I annoy you. It's okay. I can live with that. But you're my people. Not because I'm your pastor, because you're my brothers and sisters. So as we come to the table this morning, let us come with that attitude. And more determined as we leave this place to make Christ known. Jesus, help us now as we leave this room as we take to this table to be sent as your people into the mission field this week afresh and anew and change us, God, one degree by another degree. We love you, Jesus. It's in Christ's name. Amen.